the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents... You're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, You're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those one or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that that some will report uh, a number of the Founding Fathers as having been deists. And I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and, and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledged the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era, time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who were going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that. And they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III, because Americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, 
authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that time. Well, to be sure, I mean, the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith uh, and and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if, if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religion religious-hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things, to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things, and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift, and, uh, and you know, why it's uh, having a trickle-down effect in the American population, you can see uh, that the leadership in America in virtually all fields has really shifted in that direction in, in the field of uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, the popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. It's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly a biblical faith. They, are, um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so for those reasons, I think that the, uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has, um, has really uh, almost been, uh, it's been neglected, it's, uh, and, and it's to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story. Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith, and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution, 
and hopefully we'll be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Uh, Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in uh, a real, legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there that are homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching uh, content, then, again, Google his name, Rod Gregg. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I had a friend when I was growing up in um, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and this guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the Word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, in the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do. But, you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister. Uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so... The house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood. The lawns were never well kept. The house was never well maintained. The kids were never well dressed nor never well fed. Though they were all decent human beings, there always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried, even as a believer, uh, because he couldn't invite people over to his home. He felt embarrassed at times because his father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal with the the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame? Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue uh, down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welsh, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, yeah, great to be with you, too. I really, uh, really enjoy thinking about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together. You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization, and you've, you've tackled an issue here that kind of kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared at my opening remarks the, the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long, that sent, that kind of foreboding sense of of, of, of guilt about this and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame or the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us, if yeah, you would. I, I think that's an important one, but let me go, let me go back a little bit. You're, you're, you're wrestling with the question, how, how big is this issue? And 
And if we go to Scripture, it's, it seems to advertise shame is, in, in many ways, the, the premier human struggle. You know, so, you know, you have Genesis. They were naked and without shame. Well, that's just, you know, it's like, a, it's like a, the, the story being given away right at the beginning, where, you know, it's setting us up to see, okay, then they were naked and with shame. And, and really, the entire Bible becomes a, a, a wrestling with this question, what do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're, you're saying something very, very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it, but if, if Scripture is true, what we'd expect is that we're going to find, we're going to find touches of this in every single person. And, and some of those words you used to describe shame, they, boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who, haven't, who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable, uh, and but here's here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable, but I'm not lovable. There's something there's something especially not quite right about me. That's un, it's under those experiences that we find this this thing that Scripture calls shame. And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was in our in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame. Uh, until then, of course, uh, of the eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil. And suddenly, man in his nakedness went from that state of being without shame to suddenly burdened down with shame. And this is something that, of course, has, has followed us to one degree or another ever since. And, and if, we, if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis, we find this, this very concise picture of shame. And it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked, obviously. You, you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody, others can see you, and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. Uh, a second is, and you, you find this in the Genesis story, you feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong anymore. And I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in. And I can remember one, uh, this, this, this moment I had in high school where, of course, I, like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in. But then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found... These guys who were, you know, you know great guys who, who just seemed like they had everything, they didn't feel like they fit in. You, know, you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy, where, okay, you feel dirty, you feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad, we've done something wrong, and, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be because we have done something we feel like is so wrong. It's, it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed. And so there's that sense we, you know, well, for example, I, I uh, drove to work today and I expect if today wasn't like any other day, I rolled through a stop sign or two. And, and is that breaking the law? And I'm not trying to say I'm proud of it, but 
but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that, that you rolled through a stop sign today too. And, and, and so you're, you're shaking your head and say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I know, I know what you're talking about. But there, there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head. They're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally the, the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is, is we feel bad, we feel unclean, but it's, it, you, can, you can confess all day and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people that have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously, you feel dirty, but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you or somebody who's been divorced. Um, the same thing, if they were on the bad end of, the, of divorce where, where the spouse left them, there, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me. There's something bad about me. And it's not because of what they've done. It's because of what has been done to them. So, so shame really is the much larger struggle if, uh, than guilt. Guilt can be one part of shame, but shame is a much, much wider experience. Tackling the topic today as we're joined by best-selling author Edward Welsh, a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. Get your update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefits than shame. <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I I I don't find really that often in scripture. Occasionally you find it. Um, but, but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and, and, and the Lord essentially says, shame on you. Uh, you, you, have, you have no shame anymore. But, but when, when, when I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So... So I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question. Okay, here's this here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have, 
what is the way through it? Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to flipping the the perspective. In other words, oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us. Do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way God perceives us? Yeah, boy, absolutely. I, I think you, you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 you know I want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well and and as, as we understand the way God works it's not oh, oh all of a sudden in a half hour we're going to be free of shame it's it's what we're you know what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer you know just something that 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 approximates hope okay and just something that surprises us a little bit where we say oh I wasn't expecting that I wasn't expecting our God, the Holy God, to have this kind of concern for for outcasts—that—that's what we're looking for. Just in, a, in one sense, to be intrigued by a God who doesn't who doesn't conform to our expectations. And and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now too. Where in a sense, what, what the Lord says, I think, is 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 listen. Okay, just just sit down and and listen. And which is so unusual for that that's surprising in and of itself for people who wrestle with shame they feel like they have to do something they have to wash themselves more they have to they have to somehow be a fail a, a success before they're able to to be able to appear before God and other people but but what you have in scripture is a God who says listen listen to listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch watch my affection for them and and then story after story in Scripture, that's, that's what we receive. You know, what struck me so interesting, going back to my, my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in, you know, less than ideal circumstances, I, I always took note of the fact, Ed, that here was someone who, because he was not a person of, of great wealth or of status, had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. Uh, here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and giving and Christmas and so forth. Um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else out who was in need. His his own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet. When he turned that mirror on himself, yep. he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's yeah, amazing how it, there was a degree it. to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet, as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, mm-hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself but it's a it's a good starting point what you're saying where 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 people who struggle with shame you know it, maybe we could put it this way an outcast can recognize other outcasts okay. they they have keen eyes for other outcasts and 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 that seems to be the story of the new testament where here comes here comes the king and and you know, he's, you know his birth is announced with angels and prophecies but but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's, 
I recognize this guy. Okay, he doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And and, and then the, the the greatest indignity. They go down to Egypt. It's now you know Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's you know that's where they were enslaved and. And so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at you look at the Messiah, and, and and an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then then when you then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation, you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers. And, and, and Jesus was immediately on the outs, and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because, here, you, know, you remember that original complaint, hey, he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and, and tax collectors. He, he eats with people who are on the outs. He eats with the unclean, which makes him unclean himself. And, and that, was, that was the original rap against Jesus, that he associates himself with the outcast. And, and so, you know, to, to use your friend as the illustration, what we're, you know, what we're doing is, okay, you got it. You recognize an, another outcast. So watch him. Watch, you know, watch him walk through life. Now, now notice this. Do you see that that outcast, Jesus Christ, he makes a beeline toward you? Okay. And... And most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full-time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think, well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then He says, okay, now respond. And and the response can be as simple as. Amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, it's this sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days, in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly, because of no fault of their own, lost a job, lost a home, have not been able to regain employment and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us. Shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted. 
How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. He had a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure, and boy, certainly that, that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're failure at caring for their family, and yet, what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know, a prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And and, and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does, what the, the Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing. The hard things that, that 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 can be experienced shamefully before the community, and and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture, and and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example, it's you know one of one of the the early discourses that that we have from Jesus, and here's how it starts: <laughs> you know, Blessed are the poor, mm. blessed are the poor. Now now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know real, real nice all of a sudden. But it, it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, <laughs> where once again, it's as if it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's they are his people, and and so so it's very intentional that he starts out the beatitudes by saying, "Blessed are the poor." He's he's showing how things are not the way they seem. That those who are outcast. Are those are the people of the living God? They are the ones who belong ultimately to the King. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, "Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven." And again, it's you know, like you said earlier. This is a process, um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, "Oh, this is okay, great. My shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work." It, it's, is one of the just, big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately. Um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to mm-hmm. ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that that, that enormous pearl of great price as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to, to, to see our identity as he sees our identity and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while? I, I think what we're saying is that we, we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense. But, but you know, here's the problem. You go into the courtroom and, and the judge says you're, you're not guilty and you're forgiven. 
you leave the courtroom and you still feel disgusting. Well, you know, in some ways, the, the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine. And and in, in that forgiveness of sins, we have been given Christ Himself. And 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 and. And we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says you are you are now associated with me. And and so you know there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter. You are chosen. This is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame a chosen people you're chosen okay a royal priesthood you're rich uh, a holy nation you're 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 even more than clean you're holy and then that 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 thing that peter says a people belonging to god a people belonging to god that's all part of the package of of the gospel of christ the the gospel is for our guilt and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting, too, I think of that passage, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now all of a sudden we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's uh, it, it, uh, it, it's it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're okay. You're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolute. You are the one who is known by name by the king. So. So it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and and says that we you know that here's here, here this seems to be the very hub of scripture where where the Lord says to us in Christ, "I am yours and you are mine. We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for." Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it. You are articulating exactly where I'm at. How do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understanding what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin? Yeah. I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talk about my own book, but but that shame interrupted book is it's it's really looking at it's basically just looking at scripture but looking at it through the question what do i do with my shame and and just watching these beautiful words unfold so 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 that you know that can be sort of a a coach a friend if you will just to help people have eyes to see how scripture does speak to shame over and over again and, and 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 once you once you see it, once you're able to see those beautiful words, then you don't need the help as much, and you can just jump into scripture and see them. But going back to I think what you said earlier, it's just allow that little little nugget of hope to just settle in. Okay, that that maybe our God says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness that is much more than we ever imagined before. Just to have that hope, that's what a great place to start that would be. 
Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, incorp- and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are uh, and to begin to see ourselves not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press, and uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.